man, look at this place. Oh, it looks more like a, a country club than a nursing home. Nice grass, nice people. Now, I hope you brought your bathing suit. Very excited to bring you guys this episode of the podcast featuring my good friend, Andy Furtick. Uh, just want to <laughs> uh, get a little memo to you guys. Uh, Andy and I had planned on recording just a two-plus-hour uh, podcasting extravaganza. We recorded this podcast earlier this week. And, uh, you know, the, the gods at PG&E just decided it wasn't meant to be. Uh, a fuse blew at my house about halfway through the podcast, so we only had an opportunity to discuss... Uh, the rollback that was announced this week by the Uni- you know, United States Golf Association and the RNA. Um, we had planned and still plan on going into wild depths on the announcement that Bannon Dunes has begun or formally begun construction on its seventh golf course, a 19-hole short course. So uh, we are going to be jumping into it next week. As you could probably hear, my voice is a little uh, a little charred here. Had to battle a little a little cold this week after I talked to Andy. So by next week, that will be all right and ready. I will have Andy back. I'll have some other friends and some other guests back to talk all about the uh, the new course at Bannon Dunes and whatever else pops across the wire in the world of golf and sports. So uh, just want to let you guys know that. I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Andy. Uh, yeah, here we go. Let's not delay this any further. All right, nice grass, nice people. We've got a nice man joining me right now. My uh, my good friend Andy Fertig. Uh, what's up, buddy? Kyle, thanks for having me, man. Always uh, always a pleasure. And the rebrand, I'm very excited to to be a part of it. I you know I am too. And the, the rebrand just felt right. It felt right. And you know that now we're just talking about you know to, talking to nice people. Uh, you know whether you're partaking in some nice grass or you're talking about the activities that happen on nice grass it's it's all good in my book brother you're you're clearly using the word nice liberally to describe me but uh, i certainly appreciate being involved yes yes well uh nice segue <laughs> um let's just, let's just jump right into it here brother uh some news came out yesterday news that we have been waiting for honestly what feels like for a decade um and that is that bifurcation may finally be here in professional golf. Now, to anybody listening that does not know what bifurcation is referring to, that is a separate set of rules for uh, high-level competition, usually professional sports, uh, versus what is played in the amateur game. I think the most clear, you know, basic example of this would be baseball, where in the pros they use wooden, wooden bats, and every level below the professional ranks they use metal bats. Um, People in the world of golf, uh, very specifically some players, very much so the manufacturers, have been staunchly against uh, bifurcation pretty much as long as people have been discussing it and contemplating whether it's something that should get implemented in professional golf. They have a bunch of reasons that, you know, if I'm just sharing my opinion, are pretty fucking lame, are pretty, you know, pretty transparently bogus. Um but we're, we're, we're going to jump into it, man. And I, it's funny, when uh, we were talking last night, kind of getting things set up for, for tonight's podcast, before I'd even you know, seen the news that uh, you know, the, the governing bodies of golf, the United States Golf Association and the Royal and Ancient Golf Association had, had come together to make this announcement, you, you were ready with bifurcation takes. So I, 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 before, before we start getting into the nitty-gritty, I, I guess I just want to give you the floor here, brother. I mean, just, just where do you stand on bifurcation and, I mean... I don't know. The floor is yours, man. I, I, I don't want to lead you in a direction. I just want you to fucking go. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, it's it's certainly interesting, right? And it's something that I think we've been talking about for a long time, just with the bomb and gouge aspect of the PGA Tour and the whole idea of just hitting it as far as you can, being kind of the number one driver of success in golf. Now, it's certainly... Um, a very nuanced kind of discussion. And I don't know that you or I have the depth to get into all of those nuances today. Um, but it's interesting, man. And, and in kind of digging into it, it seems to your point that the manufacturers are certainly against it. The players aren't super fired up about it. Um, 
I think the the biggest thing that's exciting probably for people like you and me, um, yourself certainly as an architecture nerd and, and me as a converted architecture nerd since you brought me to the glorious land of Bandon that Appreciate seven it, or eight years ago, um, is the idea of like these traditional classic architecture golf courses being somewhat obsolete in the professional game at this point. Um, and those that don't have the luxury of buying up all the land around them to extend the course beyond the initial boundaries um, actually have a chance to get played by the best players in the world. Uh, so that's, I think, the thing that's really exciting to me, right? Like, imagine being able to see Scotty Scheffler and Rom and Rory play a place like Cyprus um, or a place like Pine Valley or, like, that to me is is the most exciting kind of byproduct of bifurcation now how it works in practice and all of those nuances will it be a success like tbd and my take is um i'm interested but i guess i'm like cautiously optimistic uh i did see today as i was getting ready for the pod that uh bryson staunchly came out against it, which makes me feel better about being on the side for bifurcation. Yes. Um, but other than that, man, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to see, I think like some of like the technical aspects of it and like the swing speed that they're testing the ball at being faster than any of the average swing speeds on tour and the launch angle being higher and like all the, the technical mumbo jumbo that goes about figuring out what this is going to look like. And like you talked about in your notes, right? Like where does the, like, is this a slippery slope as we talk about like the quote unquote elite golf? Um, that's all shit that's going to need to be figured out for sure. Yeah. I, I, you know, the announcement that the USGA and the RNA made yesterday left a lot that was still open to debate. Uh, I mean, really the one thing that a lot of people are focused on is, you know, where does the line of bifurcation start and end, right? Because they said it's just going to be something that is, you know, it, basically it's going to be implemented as a modified local rule where each tournament or golf course uh, can implement this rule for a given round or tournament or whatever it may be. So um, now if the majors, specifically if the Masters starts implementing this rule and the U.S. Open starts implementing this rule, Mike Wan, the CEO of the USGA, has already kind of alluded to the fact that he's probably, you know, if it gets ratified and it goes into effect, he's going to be using this rule at the U.S. Open. Um, I think a lot of other people will follow suit. It would certainly be fucking crazy if the majors were implementing this rule and the PGA Tour continued to kowtow to, you know, all of its players and if they really don't want it to have, like, a separate set of rules for the PGA Tour and the major championships. I feel like if all the majors end up implementing it they probably will do it on the tour as well but you know the thinking is they said it's something for elite golf well i mean obviously professional golf is elite but a lot of people would contend that top level amateur golf is also extremely elite like you know division one college golf is <laughs> incredibly elite golf a lot of guys that are playing you know, the creme de la creme of division one golf there is a better than average chance that a lot of those top guys are going to be on the PGA tour in less than four years. I mean, it's just, it's just like, well, it's just that. Yeah. I mean, especially with PGA tour, you right. And them like investing more heavily in that, like they're now trying to create this direct pipeline for people like Cootie and, um, got her up like the, the big hitters who can come in and like immediately make an impact. Like they are, really leaning into that college golf, like not a, not a freebie pass to the tour, but at least a better, you know, a kind of step up from going through corn Ferry qualifying and, and all of that stuff. So yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. And then, you know, I'd love to get, uh, you know, as we talked about before we started recording, like your boy Durr is certainly in that kind of high level amateur rank, right? Like at what, level are those folks playing and then how does that trickle down to the daryls like me who have a vanity four handicap that are playing with their buddies on the weekend and like because i'm sure as hell not trying to play a ball that doesn't go as far but are there going to be people that are like oh you're not like you're not playing the tour ball so then you have to give me another five strokes like 
that's the piece of it where I think they're going to have to draw some fine lines. And I think with the push to advance the women's game, like how does that play into it? Uh, there's just there's just a lot of moving parts. I think, like it seems at least universally that Mike Wan has been looked at as a great pickup um, for the USGA, and, great and for seems to at least yeah seems to at least have like great messaging right, and is like a polished executive that can kind of deliver this this type of stuff. Um, and certainly we're, you know, I think they said it's what, 2026 that they're talking about rolling this out initially. Yes, so there's, 2026. there's some time exactly. to figure out a lot of this shit. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm certainly excited about the opportunity to like restore some of these like classically architected golf courses and have the best players in the world play on them and, and see, see what happens or at least be able to see them. Right. Like there's. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, during COVID, you and I did that that rewatch of the wonderful world of golf just to be able to see Pine Valley. That was the first time I ever saw it. It's pretty special. By the way, I have another episode of that unreleased that we're going to be dropping on the nice grass, nice people feed here in, in, in you know, the next couple months. I don't know if, uh, yeah, the episode we did at the, the golf club de Utrecht in the Netherlands. Oh, goodness Unbelievable gracious. stuff. All right, you know, back on topic. I'm sorry. I was just getting excited thinking about the you know the wonderful world of golf. Um, well, so it's funny because Mike Wan and Martin Slumbers, the the chief of the RNA, were very very adamant and wanted to make it almost like you know put it in bold during these press conferences that these rollbacks are going to change absolutely nothing for recreational golfers. Absolutely nothing. So if you're talking about going out playing with your buddies. You know, I, I'd probably flip it if you got somebody in your group that is like, "Hey, man, like I'm playing the the no, you know, the the shorter distance ball. Do I get extra pops?" That's a fucking you problem, dude. I, I'm sorry, you're <laughs> you're out here playing with guys with fucking five handicaps on a Saturday morning. Like, if, if you want to tie one hand behind your back, fucking be my guest. But like, don't fucking ask for strokes. Like, <laughs> plus on top of that, ninety eight percent of the balls that people are gonna have access to are probably still gonna be the same. Mm-hmm. So. It, nothing is going to change for recreational golfers. I've already seen that women's golf is going to be unaffected, you know, because really the biggest gains that you're seeing from the modern golf ball don't really start to take place until you hit. I, I don't have the, the mile power number in front of me, but it, really, unless you're swinging really fucking hard, like the way that the professional golfers do, this doesn't make any difference. Like the, yep. you and I could hit the new ball and then, you know, their, their new reduced distance ball. And then the balls are playing right now. My guess is that the difference would be one percent. Like, like honestly, yeah. you would you would not notice the difference. You you don't start to see how this would affect you until your swing speed is getting to a point that ninety nine percent of recreational golfers are never never going to happen. So really, it's not going to. You could play either ball for us, and it's not going to make a difference. Now, when you start getting above that threshold, right, where I'm just going to use one hundred and twenty five miles an hour as an example, right, yeah. um, for for swing speed, for clubhead speed, um, for every mile per hour above that the gains and distance become exponential, right? So they're saying that once you get above that certain number, every increase in mile per hour can add two and a half to three yards on onto, onto your drive. So the guys that are swinging it really, really, really hard, they're the ones that are going to see, you know, the most change where, I mean, there's certain guys, I mean, if, look at Kevin Kisner. Kevin Kisner could probably be a little more on the side of you and I where he might not really see much of a difference at all. You know, he's, he's got yeah. a, you know, a little bit some by professional standards, has a little bit of a slower, smoother swing. Um, I don't know, man. I, 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 I hear what guys like Bryson are saying in terms of, hey, man, you know, like it's bullshit. Like it, this is part of like our strategy. We're trying to swing really fast. You know, this is part of you know what we do. My contention would be, well, as a professional golfer, your job is to entertain us. And despite how many times you. Greg Norman and all the other dipshits that are out there saying that it's super fun to watch guys hit at 350 yards. Like, it's not that fun. Like, I, like yeah. if I saw it in person, yeah, sure. It'd be cool to, to see somebody bomb a golf ball once. But yeah. what I really like to see is people play really good golf. And when you have guys out there, you know, guys have been quoted saying, I'd way rather hit a nine iron from the rough than a five iron from the fairway. That's an issue because now all of a sudden the incentive to be accurate off the tee is gone. You know, guys are just trying to hit the ball as far as possible. And I think I speak for you and most of – most golf fans who like really love to play and watch golf, when I say watching the pros play bomb and gouge golf, just isn't very. It's just not fun. 
Yeah. No, I, I agree. Now, to, I guess, play maybe a little bit of devil's advocate, do you think, and this is, you know, unrehearsed, right? I'm, I'm maybe taking you off our, off our script a little bit here. Do you think that rolling back the golf ball is the appropriate way to do it versus something like reducing the size of the driver head? Or I saw, I mean, and I was like deep in fucking weird golf Twitter today. So like I saw people saying like, oh, we should, we should limit the, the height of the tees to an inch and a half, or we should remove tees altogether. Like, you know, there's certainly a million ways we can go with this, right? But like, is the golf ball the best way to accomplish what we're looking to accomplish? First of all, the dude that suggested removing the tee, I mean, hot take. Like, oh no! Like, wow! Like that is that is, that is that is a sick take. I totally I'm like, people are gonna be doing the Laura Davy thing, just like banging <laughs> the turf down, and I was like, wow, that uh, is that's some galaxy brain shit right there. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a sick take. Um, so it's funny because you know, before the news dropped, my preference, or at least my first preference, would have been exactly what you had said, in that I wanted to see the size of woods and drivers reduced to 180 cc's. Period. Because I again, I, I'm gonna quote, I'm gonna reference him at least one more time in this podcast because he's been on top of this. But Andy Johnson with the Friday wrote a great article, I think back in 2019, where he was focusing a lot on Adam Scott, Tiger Woods, guys who have really great golf swings and are really accurate golfers, and how they have been more or less penalized by the improvements in driver technology, the size of the club heads. Because now, what you know for all of golf history has been the most difficult club in your bag to hit because it's just it's longer it's just it's just the most challenging club and it really it presented golfers with a true risk reward like do i want to hit this golf club right now because i'm gonna have to hit it on the screws to get it to my target the driver is now the most forgiving club in pretty much every golfer's bag and that that itself is what has stemmed this ability for guys say well fuck it man i'm just gonna start swinging harder it's the most forgiving club in the bag why wouldn't like literally why not why, why well, like and, there's no incentive for me not to try to swing this thing and hit the ball as hard as possible and i mean it goes so, back to bryson's whole tiff with cobra right of like i'm swinging so fucking fast i should be able to hit this thing anywhere on the face and get the maximum amount of ball speed and it's like well no nah, dog that's like not really the fucking goal of this thing like the goal <laughs> is for you to hit the ball in the middle of the club face and just because the club face has gotten way fucking bigger doesn't mean you should be able to hit it way high off the toe or way low off the heel and expect the same performance as you're getting off the middle of the club face. No, that's literally the antithesis of golf. Like, it, it, it's, it's exactly the opposite of how the game was sort of designed to be played, right? So, you know, to, to get back to your question, I, I was always a fan of, yeah, like basically reducing the size of the club heads, more or less bringing, you know, keep the great, you know, modern technology, but in a reduced size that would essentially force players to have to hit truly great shots and make really good precise swings and you know make great contact in order to get the result that they want now i've also heard the two greatest golfers of all time in tiger woods and jack nicholas have been talking about how they think rolling the ball back is far and away the best way to implement bifurcation for the professional game versus the recreational game i tend to think those guys you know i i should that's, that's a little generous to myself. Those guys definitely know way more about golf than I'll ever know. So I I, 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 I am I am totally fine kind of like deferring to them. I Ultimately, it's my opinion that I think this is a good first step. I think to get professional golf back to where I'd ideally like it to be, this is just the first step. I think it's, you know, I would like to see more. I would like to see the ball rolled back, and I'd like to see – the size of the club heads for woods and drivers reduced. That is what I think would make the most fun product to watch as a fan of golf. Do you, do you think yeah. that's going too far, or do you think this is a sufficient step where we can just see what the ball rollback looks like and then figure out whether or not anything else needs to happen after we've been watching the reduced ball for a couple of years? It's, it's tough to say. Um, I tend to agree. I, I, I would say the most persuasive argument that I saw in like the deep abyss of golf Twitter that I was in today was isn't one of the most impressive things about watching the best in the world do what they do is the fact that they're doing what they're doing with the same shit that we're doing with what we're doing. 
right? Yeah. And does it change anything when we're watching them and say, oh man, like, you know, Scheffler only hit that 270. Like, you know, if I catch one, I can get it out there 270, right? Like, you know, is, is that something that not necessarily makes their game less impressive? Obviously, their game is always going to be impressive to, to people like us. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was something that kind of got my gears turning of like, is that why I like watching them? Or do I just like, I, I, do I just like the product, right? Like, I, I, I'm one of those guys, it's, it's tough for me to say, like, I'm one of those guys that like, I'm going to watch, they could play with fucking tennis rackets and I'm going to watch them play. Um, so like, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably not the target demographic to, to try to figure out like what, what it is and, and how far is too far and where the line is drawn. But um, that was something that I thought was kind of a provocative take of like, huh, is that like, cause that is something right where you're like, when you go to Aaron Hills and you're sitting at that 298 marker where Justin Thomas hit that three wood that like nobody could land the ball on the green all day with a wedge, like is, does, does them playing with a different ball or different equipment, does that make anything that they're doing less impressive? Like, I I don't know. I guess the proof will be in the pudding. Um, but I thought that was like an interesting kind of topic to talk about as, as you know, as, as you hear out there, it's a real who could say type situation, you know, I mean, we won't know until we see it. Um, again, going back to what we're talking about, I, I think for, you know, some golfers, they're going to think in their head, Oh man, like they're using something different. It's, it's not like, it's not one-to-one anymore. But again, are you swinging 130 miles an hour? It was never one-to-one. Like, I'm sorry. Like they're like, they truly are playing a completely different game than the other 99.9% of us. Right. And you know, it's not impossible that you could still hit 300 yard drives with the with a rolled back ball, golf ball. These guys, cool. they're predicting that they're predicting that someone like Rory, at least with the data that they released, you know, I I don't want to go into the exact numbers of how they're gonna calculate and put the the limits they're gonna put on the ball because it's just you know it's just gonna make everybody's head hurt. But they were saying that for someone like Rory McIlroy, who's averaging 320 yards with his driver, that if with a reduced flight golf ball or with a reduced you know it's gonna decrease the spin. Um, you know, maybe that 320 is going to go to 305. He's still, you know, <laughs> he's still going to hit the still, ball a long. Yeah, he's still going to hit the ball a long he's still way. Still Walmart and, away from you and me in the middle of the fairway for sure. Yeah, and it, it, the other thing for me is, and again, this is another point that I actually heard um, Andy at the Fried Egg make, which is something I've been talking to you guys about for a long time, and that is, there's just a lot of golf shots at the golf pros that you watch today, just don't ever hit. I mean. Unless they're playing a par five, when do you ever see a pro hitting a four iron or a five iron, like off the fairway? Never, because for Rory McIlroy, they say you've got a you know a four hundred and ninety yard par four, a long par four, a par four that you or I, if we were playing, was like, damn, dude, I gotta, I gotta rope two golf shots and I have to hit them accurately. Like, all right, the challenge is right here in front of me. Like, let's go. Yeah. Rory McIlroy hits a three hundred and twenty five yard drive on a four hundred ninety yard par four. Uh, quick math for me, Andy. That means he's got 170, 160, 165 in. He's got 490 yard par four. He's going driver nine iron. Yeah. Like, no, and I think, I think that's, that is like, and I saw people being like, who fucking cares? Like who, who I fucking care. Like I, 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 I granted I'm, I am, you know, I'm a little bit more in the weeds than like maybe your average fan. But like, I also like, there's a lot of people that don't work in golf that watch a lot more golf than I do. Like I'm, I'm not necessarily like the nerdiest, you know, the biggest totally. like, golf dork out there. And I just fucking love playing golf. And to me, that's where the people lose me when it's like, Oh, it's not relatable. They're using different equipment. It's like, first of all, it was never relatable But two, you know totally. what? I want to see these guys have a fucking four into a par four. That's something that I deal with all the fucking time because I don't hit the ball yeah. very far. I want to see if they can hit the green and hold a green with a four iron. Like I'm trying to do that to me would be way more relatable than using the one for one golf ball and trying to figure out they can hit a three thirty. Wonder if I can hit three thirty. Spoiler, you can't. Yeah, well, and it's it's funny, right? It's it's the reason that I catch myself like when I flip on an LPGA event or it's a major where they're playing at a cool course, right? That I'm like fucking dialed into that because I'm like, oh shit, they're one eighty five 
and they're hitting a fucking six iron or a five iron, just like I would be hitting a six iron or a five yes. iron. Like that's fucking cool. Like that's a hard shot from the middle of the fairway. Like, damn, and she executed the shit out of that. Like that is it is much more relatable. And so I think it's going to be getting past the you know, call it ego, bravado, whatever whatever bullshit that people have in their mind about like well, I, you know, I play a Pro V1 and they play a Pro V1. Like, we're, you know, playing the same game, right? That now we actually are playing the same game. And Bob, you're a 24 handicap. Yeah. 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 You haven't hit a six iron 185 <laughs> yards in 30 years. Yeah. So yeah. what what are we talking about here, right? So, I, I, yeah, it's, again, it's something where, I'm glad that they're doing it in a uh, I'm glad that there's the time to allow them to kind of figure out a lot of this shit. Um, I think they're certainly facing a ton of headwinds. I think we haven't even really gotten into like the OEM piece of it and like whether Titleist and TaylorMade and Callaway and all those companies give a shit about building new golf balls for these guys that are getting them for free anyway. Um, knowing that there's no aftermarket, that they're not going to be able to charge the Daryl's like you and me, $56 a, a dozen to, to buy them. Um, and does that, does the downstream effects of that increase the cost of everyday golf for us? Like all that shit still needs to be figured out. Right. But yeah. Right. Is it exciting for me to, to potentially see a, these golf courses that have kind of become obsolete be able to not be obsolete anymore like fuck yeah man like that's super cool yeah i it you make a great point and that has been one of the main arguments from a lot of manufacturers right like hey this is bad for golf right because it's going to make golf more expensive because now we're going to have to pour however many millions of dollars in research and development into coming up with this you know new ball for the pros who as you very very astutely pointed out don't fucking pay for anything Right. Like the, the, these balls are going to have to be made specifically for people that are going to provide zero revenue to these companies. Correct. And so they're going to probably in turn increase prices on clubs, balls, you know, the same fucking balls that people are already paying fifty six dollars a dozen for are going to get a little more expensive, which, by the way, I, I don't want to discount, you know, the hard work that the people at Titleist, Callaway, Bridgestone put into the engineering of their golf balls. I know it's pretty incredible. I'm sorry. $56 for 12 golf balls. You guys are, what's, what's your profit margin? 7,000%? Like, I, I, I don't feel bad for you. I, I, I just, I just straight up, like, yeah. I'm a Callaway shareholder. I don't feel bad for me. Like, it's fine. It's totally fine. And honestly, yeah. in my, in my view, the money that you would theoretically be losing having to spend on, re, you know, R&D for this new golf ball, you can't fucking tell me there's not going to be thousands, if not tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of dudes that after a thing goes in they're like dude i gotta get the new ball i gotta i gotta see how how oh. i play there it's not like you're not gonna fucking sell it. i mean that's been my whole argument with like the reduced club heads is like dude taylor made titleist if you guys make these reduced size club heads that the pros have to use every fucking just woke ass golf dude and I, I actually mean that sincerely because i love woke golf people they spend a lot of money i i'm in the business of selling you know, nice golf items myself, so I I, I love it. I, I don't I don't mean it as a negative thing, but the people that are super you know conscious about their equipment, their accessories and things like that, there's already tens, if not again, hundreds of thousands of dudes out there that have multiple sets of clubs. They have their modern set. I got dude, I got my 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 set with my '90s blades that you know like my '90s set. I have like my old Hickory set. Golfers can never have enough golf clubs. So if you're gonna do something where you bifurcate the game where you, in addition to having separate balls, you also have separate clubs. The argument that you're just going to be creating these to provide them to people that aren't going to be buying them d carries no weight. Like, I, I, it's just, it's categorically false. It makes no sense. I, I would love to have an OEM representative on this podcast to pick their brains to see how they've come to the conclusion that there wouldn't be a market for bifurcated balls, clubs, what have you. I mean, if you had the means, would you not... Uh, it seems like a no-brainer. Totally. And it's the same shit we talked about, right? Of like, you know there's going to be some clown that's like, oh, you guys don't play the fucking, you know, Titleist Super Tour <laughs> X500s. Like, pff, pussy. 
Well, you know, like there, there's always going to be those people and there's the people that you see that are the 12 to 15 handicaps that are like, yeah, no, I, I got these blades. Cause like when I got fit for them, man, like they, they were just so pure when I hit them on the sweet spot, like, and I got them cut, like, you know, it's two degrees upright and I got a little extra weight on the toe and like, I got some lead tape on my pitching wedge and, and it's the, the golfers are tinkerers, dude. And they're, they're generally on the, the higher end of the of the socioeconomic spectrum and they have the disposable income to spend on stuff and like yeah i I, now are you and i gonna go rush out to buy clubs and balls that are arguably harder to hit like no i'm i'm still trying to put a chip on back in my bag but like that's that's you know to each their own but let's let's not pretend like we don't know who our target demographic is and that yes. there isn't going to be a market. I, I 100% exactly. agree with you there. Um, so, yeah, do I think it's just like hemming and hawing and, and kind of bitching about like, well, you know, what about? Yeah, sure. But I, I think you guys are going to end up doing just fine. Yeah, it's like, you know, there's been they're so fat and happy as is that the concept of, like, you know, having to do something else that they're not like just is not outside of their routine that that's pretty much in my opinion kind of what it feels like to me is that they just don't want to be bothered yeah well and it's it's funny that you say that because i actually uh work with a golf oem uh who will remain nameless for the purpose of this call but we can we can discuss it offline sure and I remember meeting with them as we were trying to negotiate something at the end of the last fiscal year for us and their CFO telling us, you know, we see golf going through a similar contraction that tech's going to go through. And so we just don't have the money to spend on X, Y, and Z, you know, what you're selling, we're not buying. And I said, you know, it's, it's funny cause I still can't get a fucking tea time. So I have I find it hard to believe that that golf is going through a contraction, but maybe you know maybe I'm I'm in the minority here, but I I don't know that I buy that, and so I think that there is this like sense of impending dread with the OEMs of like well what happens and then we're gonna have to spend even more money on because if you think about it right like how they market these clubs how Callaway goes to market how Titleist goes to market how TaylorMade goes to market TaylorMade talked about. We had 19 sound engineers get involved in the building of the of the Stealth 2 so we could figure out the exact pitch that people... Who gives a fuck? That right? seems like, incredibly unnecessary. That, that, 19? That seemed, it was some, some crazy number like that, right? Yeah. And like, there's there's so much of that. And, and Callie told, oh, we're using AI to build the paradigm. And we use AI to build the, you know, jailbreak. The, and hey, that's awesome, right? And like, your guys' clubs are great. And, but let's not pretend that like all this money that you're spending on R and D, you're not getting back tenfold. Yeah, a hundred percent. Golf OEMs do very well, like by, by and large. I mean, there's obviously a couple of exceptions, but you know, the the ones that have survived the last t- 10, 15 years, they're all doing very well. Especially considering that there's been enough of them that have gone out of business, just like golf itself, right? Golf has been closing more golf courses year over year for the last decade. Then has been opening, right? It's the it's been a correction to, you know, return the appropriate amount of supply and demand within the golf industry. The same thing has happened with club manufacturers, right? Nike doesn't make clubs anymore. There's only a handful of major OEMs that basically get to share the entire pie of the golf supply. They're doing fine. <laughs> like it again, the woe is me argument kind of falls on deaf ears. Like it it just. I, I, to me, it just seems like laziness, and also it seems to be like a lack of creativity from the marketing department. Like we were saying, th- this is going to provide people with more opportunities to sell more shit to people. I mean, that's a cap- that's a capitalist dream. And it's it's people that are like begging you to take their money. It, it's, it's not unwilling, you know. Golfers golfers are the most will like. We are we are there to say, hey, oh, you got something that's gonna give me another ten yard. You got something that's gonna make my you know dispersion circle shrink by a radius of five yards. Like, here's a thousand bucks, dude. Take it. Like, name me this, name me another sport, Andy, where I could be putting together a small little four day trip for like my buddies to go play a sport for four days, almost two years in the future, and be like, hey guys, I want to put this little four day trip together. 
it's going to be a couple thousand dollars. And I actually need you guys to probably send me a deposit like now just to make sure we can like make it happen. And a dozen guys within, you know, an hour are like, great, send me my money right now. I, yep. I, I don't know another sport that I would like golfers are, are, are more down to spend more on their pastime than just about any, certainly any other sporting pastime that I can think of. Listen, as, as a sales guy by trade, I could only wish that, that I was selling to a consumer that was as willing to buy as the general golfing public. That's really well said. <laughs> very, very well said. Uh, as somebody who has worked in golf media selling print advertising to golf courses, not exactly the same for the employees <laughs> at the golf courses. Uh, so I, I, I'm right there with you, brother. I, I, yeah, that, that sounds great to me. Um, all right, so before we, we move on here, brother, do you have any other thoughts on the whole bifurcation thing going on? I, I have one that I wanted to touch on, and that's basically just I if this ends up go, you know happening, the bifurcation, you know, the ball gets rolled back, um, I'm just really excited to see guys playing golf. And it, we kind of touched on this already. Just playing golf that's more relatable, right? Guys that are going to be going driver five iron. Like, I, I think what this will really help do is will help the cream rise to the top more consistently from tournament to tournament where the advantage of hitting the ball really, really far outweighs any other single advantage seemingly that guys have on tour outside of somebody who just gets really hot putting that now if the ball gets rolled back, it would seem, you know, it would make sense to me that now a more well-rounded golfer, the guy like a Scotty Scheffler who just seemingly can hit every shot in the bag. He's going to, you know, even though he hits the ball a long ways, he would benefit from this, right? Because he's, you know, he's still going to hit the ball, you know, a really, really long way, and he still has all those shots in the bag. They're going to be unaffected by it. I, it. It's just a system that allows the very best golfers with the best all-around games to be in the mix and on that leaderboard on Sunday more often is great for golf. I agree. It's it's it comes back to like the ball striking aspect of it, right? Which, at the end of the day, is the like epitome of golf. Like we talked about, right? Like hitting the ball in the middle of the club face is the most important skill that you can have outside of putting in the game of golf. And if this is a way to, you know, kind of differentiate the people that are able to hit the ball in the middle of the club face the best, like I'm all for it. Totally. Yeah, man, I'm, uh, I'm excited to see what, you know, this is just the first you know, the first announcement, like you said, 2026 is when they're aiming to have this thing implemented. We're three years away. I'm sure there's going to be a lot that happens between now and then. But, uh, it, you know, it sounds like there are two people on this podcast in particular that are large advocates of bifurcation. Yeah, so maybe, I, maybe, we'll, maybe between now and 2026, we'll have a couple more times to, to poke around and, and figure out some of that nuance about it. Yes, exactly right. Awesome, man. Well, um, I, I know I briefly mentioned Scotty Scheffler. We're only going to touch on a little bit here. Did you watch much of the uh, the players this past weekend? I did. I was actually like very dialed into the players, which I feel like I'm I'm not normally. Um, I did also have a uh, plus nine hundred future on Scotty Scheffler, uh, which I was that. very excited to sweat free cash on Sunday. Um, Plus yeah, 900 man, I, with a six-shot lead going to the back nine has got to feel comfy. You, you don't know, get very was, many of those. It, it was funny. My dad texted my brother and I and was like, "Yeah, I think you and I think I think you guys could finish out Scotty's lead at this point." And he was like on 12, and I was like, "When he got <laughs> on the green on 18, I was like, now I think we could finish it out." Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean the the chaos of 17. Like I, 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 I know you may not agree. Like I. I actually thought it was like a relatively electric tournament. I thought that the leaderboard was pretty good. I thought Minwoo looking like a James Bond villain was like a great foil to Scotty. I, I made a very rare one. Instagram live Instagram post where I was like, I just saw him walking off in slow motion. The dude, the, the camera team did such a good job. They had him going in slow motion and then fading out of his face into like another shot of him. I was just like, this fucking man is it. <laughs> He's dude, it. And his golf swing is so sick, dude. Um, and, like, the way the first hole went, I was like, oh, we're about to be in for a day. Like, I was thinking about sneaking out by myself and just, like, trying to get a quick round in on Sunday. The weather's been so shitty down here um, that I was like, oh, maybe I can jump out. And I was like, you know what? Like, I think I'm just going to, like, watch this tournament. 
And I was telling a bunch of our buddies, um, I'm certainly not the biggest Pete Dye fan. We have like, a, a, you know, that we have the stadium course out in La Quinta. Um, and I think I've played it once or twice and like, I'm, I'm all set. Like I'm good on that. Um, but I do really enjoy like watching these guys play. And I thought that it was in like unbelievable shape. I thought it showed amazing on television. I thought the weather generally like held up and, and made it interesting and was kind of a train wreck coming down the end. So I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. It really entertaining. I found that I've enjoyed watching the players year over year, like more and more as, as I've gotten older. And I think, you know, I, I hear what you're saying with the the Pete Dye thing. It, I actually haven't played that many Pete Dye golf courses for how many are out there. Um, but the few that I have played, I've enjoyed immensely. Now, I have not played the stadium course. I, To my understanding, that one's a little bit of a one-off. I, I, I don't – I think I could say, you know, as much as somebody who's never played it themselves can say that it's probably not a great representation of the larger Pete Dye portfolio. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I do fair. think, yeah, I, I think his golf courses, at least the ones that I've played, have been really, really fun. Uh, strategically, I, I think they're really great, and you certain, you know, TPC Sawgrass is certainly that way. I think, you know, I, I think some people, you know, may not love Pete Dye specifically for like the aesthetics of his golf courses because they do look very manufactured. But I think the the strategy like of the golf courses is for the most part pretty sound. Um, and I, I do think they, yeah, I, I think they're pretty good. I mean, it's Tom Doak's basically mentor. Um, you know, yeah. Tom Doak basically builds Pete Dye golf courses with crazier greens, but the, you know, with a much more natural look and yeah. those, those seem to be pretty well received. They, they do. And, and I'm certainly willing to give the stadium course another shot. Now, granted to your point, it was, I, no, 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 I, I think you're good. Just did, did ditch the stadium course. Let's just go play some other Pete Dye golf courses. And the next time, it's, you know what? Yeah. It's it's March Madness here coming up here, brother, and maybe we might be able to touch on the tournament here for a couple minutes later in the show. But the next time you are in Vegas, make the trip out to Paiute. There's three Pete Dye golf courses out there. It's like half an hour outside of like you know from from the Strip, and they're all really fun. And that's so that there, there's a, a good example of Pete Dye desert golf that is actually like, in I would say pretty great. Like all three of those courses they have out of Paiute are really really fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly interested. And I think, you know, I, I remember seeing that Pete Dye's, uh, his mission that he was set on when he built the stadium course in La Quinta was to, like, build the hardest golf course in America. So uh, Did he succeed? That's, it, it, it beat me up pretty good a okay. couple times. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I, I would certainly be willing to get, give it another shot. I think there's just so much good golf out in the desert that I'm always like, ah, why am I going to go like, you know, that it's, it's like a, a guilted ex lover, right? Like, why am I going to go back to that? There's, there's like so much good other stuff out here that I can go find. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I thought in terms of, and I got more into, you know, I'd always watch the players, but I got more into like the no laying up, you know, Tron did his video from kind of like position a on mm-hmm. each of the holes. And very, very fun. Uh, if, 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 if people out there listening, haven't watched that yet, would highly recommend. Yeah. And they did, I know foreplay did like a Billy Horschel scramble, which I watched like the first nine holes of and, and just didn't have time to finish. Um, it, I mean, it, it showed great on all of those and seemed certainly like a, a, an interesting, fun golf course. So not, not to shit on Pete Dye altogether, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I thought that God rest the, his soul. the tournament itself was very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree. I mean, for not an interesting finish. I was going to say for for having little to no drama on the back nine on Sunday, still a very entertaining golf tournament. I think that golf course is just it I, I think you hit it perfectly. They do a great job of making that golf course pop visually. It just looks so fucking good on TV. Um there's enough carnage and enough chaos happening throughout the golf course that there's always something interesting to watch. There's a lot of birdies and a lot of bogeys, which I think makes for really good like really fun professional golf to watch. Um we're, we're going to get into our weekend scout thing here where, you know, we talk about the venues that the guys are playing and how, you know, it relates to us, right? You know, it's about me, okay? Uh, and, like, whether or not, you know, we'd want to plan a golf trip around it. 
I, I know I talked about it with uh, with Christopher last week, uh, but I just ask you real quick. TPC Sawgrass, given your thoughts on Pete Dye, is it, would it be on the bucket list for you? Uh, not at five ninety five or okay. six fifty or whatever. You know, like it, it's one of the like I, I would be if I was in the area and I had the opportunity. But like when I think of like the most like I know you and Dirt talked about Kapalua, right? And and how it kicked my ass twice. Um, which seems to be a theme of this podcast. Um, <laughs> or the Instagram feed. That was, yeah, that was a course that I think was the most expensive golf course I've ever played maybe times two, right? Um, which is saying something because you and, live in Orange County where the golf's not cheap. Yeah, and um, it was totally worth it. Like that was that was absolutely something that I would pay the – whatever 500 plus four that I, that I paid to play that day. Um, and I think, you know, we, you, you and I talked about it on the phone a couple of weeks ago, like Pebble, I think is a course like that, like bucket list courses. Um, do I think Sawgrass is on there? Like no. Okay. So probably like for you then, you know, going to Jacksonville to, you know, for a golf trip may not be one of the first dozen places you think of or taking a boys, you know, long weekend boys trip. You know, there's probably a few that are ahead of that. Maybe okay. some on your upcoming uh, schedule for Suave Golf. Yeah, yeah, that is uh, actually which we will touch on here uh, at, at some point. But uh, you know, I, what I'm curious about is, you know, is <laughs> now that we're coming up on the Valspar Championship, which is going to be contested at the Copperhead Course at Innisbrook Resort. Uh, in God, what is the name of that? Uh, it's, it's a suburb outside of Tampa, right? Palm Harbor, Florida. Shit, I had it right there in my fucking notes. Couldn't even read it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and guess that Palm Harbor, Florida is probably also not uh, super high on the list for you in terms of bucket list golf destinations. Um, but this is our weekend scout segment. So, you know, we want to look at where the pros are playing, figure out whether or not that's a, a locale, a golf course that would be worth traveling to to play and then maybe building, you know, building a weekend around. Um all I know is, Andy, that I've I've never heard anybody personally talk about Innisbrook Golf Resort in Florida. Uh, I've never heard anybody say that it's they can't wait to go. They've been they've had you know been planning a trip to it. I I haven't seen a lot of of accolades. Uh, I do know that when I went to you know in my preparation for this podcast, I went to the Innisbrook Resort uh, website, and it didn't really have anything specific about the Copperhead Course or the resort. Or, you know, what makes the golf course um, special? It just in big, bold, all-caps lettering just told me that I get to, uh, I can play where the pros play. Yeah. There wasn't a lot else, though. So I I know that Innisbrook is somewhere that they have a professional golf tournament. But I'm not totally sure uh, why else somebody (laughs) would go who doesn't live in the Tampa area. But I, I'm ready to have my mind changed, Andy. I, I know that you did a little research on Innisbrook before we jumped in the pods. So I'd love to hear what you found out. I did, Kyle. I did a, a solid seven minutes of, of research on That's Innisbrook. almost five and a half more minutes than I spent. Great. I'm, I'm here to tell you that um, I'm probably not the guy to change your mind. Um, we'll, start with the, we'll start with the pros. Um, you can play where the pros play. They certainly make that very fucking clear on their website. Yes, they do. Um, and yeah, the, the pros do play there. Um, so that, that's cool. Uh, not all the pros though. Not, not, not even most of them. Um, <laughs> the, their, the other pro I would say is they have four golf courses. That's fucking cool. Yeah. I think going somewhere that has multiple golf courses and lets you, kind of build the trip around not playing the same golf course every day is, is certainly interesting. Um, I also would argue that like four courses is kind of, if you're going to have four full golf courses is sort of the sweet spot in terms of like a, a weekend trip of being able to get a feel for all of them. Um, so I like that. Um, and that's about, that's about the, the end of my pros list. Um, I think, 
I did a little poke around of their packages, right? Of like, hey, what am I looking at if I were to, you know, try to book a, a trip out here? Um, you're looking at, they have like a package which gives you access to the practice facility, uh, all the golf courses, um, there's like a, a one hour session with a pro every night, which like, I don't know that I'm really that interested in like getting down on a lesson, like after 36 holes, potentially in a day in Florida humidity. Um, that was not really a, a huge selling point for me. Uh, I think it included breakfast, you know, some of the kind of general resort stuff. Um, I think we we're looking at like $1,100 a night, uh, here in April, which was like a lot um even in you know today's economy um so yeah it's i don't know man i like it's it's weird when you sent this over i was like fuck like innisbrook we gotta i gotta like look that up like i like all i can think about is that giant fucking snake statue that they have that is like that that is the most yes that's what people think of when they think of Innisbrook. I don't know if they really think too much about the golf. I mean, if you are a huge golf fan, which, again, if you're listening to this podcast, I think the odds are somewhat good that you are a big golf fan. Um, you know, you're thinking narrow, tree-lined, kind of Florida golf that doesn't totally look like Florida golf, um, but probably plays kind of like Florida golf. I I don't know. I, Admittedly, I'm kind of a snob. Like, there, there are certain types of golf that, like, just tr- don't really – get my juice flowing all that much like you know desert golf i most people love desert golf desert golf doesn't do a ton for me i mean i've played great desert golf courses that i would that i love playing over and over and over again but by and large desert golf just isn't isn't my first choice of places i want to play just florida golf in general um most florida golf courses i see don't do much for me now I don't get to watch a lot, of, you know. I don't get to watch people play a lot of golf at Seminole or Mountain Lake or you know places well, like TPC Sawgrass looks fucking sick. Like, would love, you know, would love to yeah. play there. But by and large, Florida golf, you know, most of the you know retirement community golf courses that make up the majority of the golfing you know landscape in the state of Florida, not not doing a ton for me. Not a place that I probably want to. And that is where we got cut off. So. Until next week, guys, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. This episode was proudly presented to you by Suave Golf. Visit suavegolf.com to check out uh, some really kick-ass golf trips, some cool apparel and accessories to help make your enjoyment of the game of golf as heightened as possible. All right, everybody, until next week, adios. Adios.